episode 273, COVID-19, at what level will telehealth survive after the end of the pandemic? Today, I speak with Jonathan Thierman, MD, PhD, from LifeBridge Health System. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Everybody's been talking about the surge in telehealth usage, how it would have taken like 10 years to get as far as we've gotten in the past 10 days. I wanted to talk to somebody who has been ramping up their telehealth capabilities for a while to get a sense of what it takes to do it well. As has been said by many, doing telehealth isn't just about technology. It's about training clinicians and patients and accounts receivable and other staff. It's about rearranging workflows and processes. So I was super pleased to have had the opportunity to talk with Jonathan Thierman, MD, PhD. Dr. Thierman is an ER doc. He's also the chief medical information officer for LifeBridge Health Systems and the medical director of the LifeBridge Virtual Hospital. So this show has two parts, episode 273 that you're listening to. But the second part, episode 274, is where we're going to get into some of the operational aspects of telehealth, like what EHR integration actually means and what it looks like. Today, on episode 273, however, Dr. Thierman and I discuss what telehealth can accomplish, maybe better than a face-to-face patient encounter, and what it's not so good at. One thing that dawned on me as we were talking is that the technology isn't just, you know, a video system. There's apps, there's AI, there's minivans full of lab equipment. There are other innovations that expand the capability of a remote patient visit. Here's another point to ponder that Dr. Thierman and I explore a little bit. What is the impact of telehealth in a value-based care environment, but also in FFS fee-for-service reimbursement model? It's likely, if you think about it, there will be more patient visits because the barrier to getting care has diminished. And that might be a good thing if we're talking about chronic care, if we're talking about ensuring follow-up after surgical procedure. There's any number of examples where patients getting help prior to some sort of acute event would be considered a good thing by most. But does improving access to care increase a patient's chances of getting inappropriate care? You know, 25 plus percent of care is some variation of waste, fraud and abuse and additional services rendered always have the risk of negative consequences. Or do we figure that, you know, bad actors are doing a pretty good job behaving badly anyway, so the net positive for the rest of us is worth it? My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Jonathan Thierman, MD, PhD. Welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you. It's great to be here. Let's talk about telehealth, its explosion in the midst of this COVID-19 pandemic. You know, why don't we start the story at the very beginning, pre-C19, you know, like February, January 2019. You know, about how many docs were using telehealth? What was the goal? What was going on relative to telehealth before this whole thing started? Sure. We've been interested in telehealth for a couple of years now at LifeBridge, and I've been spearheading those efforts to get more and more doctors involved with telehealth. It depended on the the venue as to 
who was adopting it and who wasn't adopting it. We had higher rates of adoption in our ED teletriage process, but uh, lower rates of adoption for our primary care doctors. And so we initially approached about 100 primary care doctors and only had a modest uptake in getting signed up for telemedicine. Our initial rate of use of telemedicine in the primary care setting was just really a handful a month, so maybe 10 or 15 visits a month. In the teletriage setting, we were doing a lot of teletriage visits, but we were only doing a few dozen PCP visits, primary care visits. That all changed with COVID-19. So then COVID-19 happens. And as you said, while the ED telehealth initiative was running, primary care physicians and the ambulatory physicians as you said, it was like 10 to 15 visits a month, which is paltry compared to the overall number of encounters, of patient encounters. What happens after the advent of C-19? Patients will have become largely afraid, and rightly so, to come to medical facilities and see their doctor in person. So the rates of visit rates have gone down dramatically. Many practices have seen 60, 70% drops in their normal activities and normal visit rates. Telemedicine, because of a number of factors, became much more desirable and much more practical because of some of the changes in legislation and reimbursement. So we've been trying really hard and been quite successful at regaining some of those losses that the primary care practices have seen And also, frankly, on the patient side, providing access, which is always what telemedicine was about. But in this case, it's extreme because the access was greatly limited because patients weren't coming, provided access to patients who really needed to be seen. We can talk about that more later, too. But there's been a huge uptick in the rate of critical patients that come into ERs because they sat at home and languished with medical conditions that really need to be addressed, but they were afraid to come in. So their condition got worse at home. And that's something that telemedicine is addressing with primary care visits in telemedicine. Yeah, and that has been noted as a definite issue right now. All-cause mortality is is increasing and the acuity, you know, as the acuity of, of some of these chronic conditions or things which go on <laughs> remain unaddressed for, for probably too long. Like in normal times, patient would have called their doctor up immediately and gone in to see them, but now they can't. So you went from having 10 to 15 primary care telehealth visits a month to how many? It actually grows every week. And I'm looking at a graph right now of our primary care and specialists, cardiologists and neurologists and other specialists, um, but mostly primary care. Over the last four weeks, it grew steadily from about three a day to 170 a day and then 500 a day. And most recently, about 900 a day. So we've seen 15,724 visits in the last five weeks of primary care, whereas before that, our corporate goals were to see something like 3,000 in the year. So the uptick has been phenomenal. It's made a huge difference for patients and for the practices to be able to keep their doors open. Yeah, I think that definitely qualifies as a spike. So, you know, 
on average, how many telehealth visits is that per physician? Or, or said another way, if you don't have that stat really available for it varies wildly. If a physician typically would see some number of patients in a day, eyeball to eyeball, what percentage are they now seeing via telemedicine? You know, like, are they seeing yeah. 80% of the patients they used to see? Or what does that look like? Sure. So just some numbers. We have now signed up and created 494 accounts for telemedicine for our providers. We still have outstanding requests because the requests keep pouring in. So we have about 200 more accounts to create and we're working hard to get everyone set up. I've been told from the practices that while their revenues and their patient visits and their volumes were down up to 70% before, they've regained at least half of that volume back with telemedicine. So I would say that a practitioner who's using this well might be down 15 or 20% now from their baseline volumes of patients, but certainly not 70%. And do you feel like vis-a-vis the telemedicine solution that patients are getting adequately cared for? You know, like there's been a lot of talk lately or thinking, kind of people dividing into camps (laughs) that telemedicine will work versus, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're not sitting in front of the patient, maybe you don't notice certain things like signs of domestic abuse or Mm -hmm. you can't look down someone's throat well or any number of things, which I'm sure you've heard. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating question and it highlights the importance of remembering the limitations on telemedicine. I'm not an advocate that it's going to solve all problems and can't do surgery over telemedicine and you can't even fill an abdomen over telemedicine. So there's definitely limitations. That being said, I used to, when I practiced in the ED full-time and and it was really, really busy, which by the way, it's not nearly as busy now, unfortunately, for the patients. But when it was really, really busy, I used to think to myself, if I worked in communist Russia and I had the ability to just walk through this waiting room and have a five-minute conversation with each of the 40 people sitting here and assess whether or not they really were sick and needed urgent care or they could be written a prescription real quickly or sent home to their primary care to follow up. I could clear out the waiting room in an hour and relieve all the weight that people were anxiously waiting for their visit. You know, of course, with tort reform and all those things, or tort law and and all those things in this country, you can't just do that because there's risk associated with it. But the idea is that, especially for the more experienced physicians who've kind of, quote unquote, seen it all at least once before, there's really a huge percentage of patient care that could be done remotely in terms of PCPs, all of their well checkups and visits that don't require a, a hands-on physical exam, they can do remotely. They certainly can discuss symptoms and adjust medication dosages remotely. The vast majority of medicine, except for surgical services, really is, is a mental game. It's not a physical game. There's a whole history and a lot of benefit as well as some psychological comforts of hands-on medicine. But if you could reach way more people and you could give access and care in a very timely and efficient manner to far more people, I think the benefit outweighs the loss of doing it via telemedicine. And and that applies with limitations. It doesn't apply to, like I said, if someone has an acute abdomen and comes in, you really can't palpate their belly over telemedicine. The other thing that's changed dramatically in healthcare, which is different from the home visiting doctor with the black doctor's bag who laid hands on versus today is we're very highly data driven. So we rely on values from labs, values from our images 
interpretations so heavily that some of the old traditional diagnostic tools of the practicing physician are not as critical today as they once were. So an example of that would be auscultation, listening to the lungs with a stethoscope. It's an important thing to do. There are things that you can pick up on that you wouldn't otherwise pick up on. But if you asked me to choose, if I had to give up either an x-ray image of the chest or my stethoscope, I'd give up the stethoscope because the x-ray is so much more sensitive and and specific for diseases of the chest and the lungs than, than the stethoscope. So Although in this age of the pandemic, so if we were beyond the pandemic and someone called up with a lung issue, I'm having shortness of breath, I'm having trouble breathing. If they're over telemedicine, you could still say, you know, go get an x-ray. Whereas if you're using the stethoscope and you're an in-person encounter, you get some immediate feedback from the the stethoscope. So I guess there's they're different and I guess there's pros and That's cons. That's true. Yeah, I mean, we can we can talk about the all the different avenues for. There are a number of home, the Uber of X-ray and the Uber of lab, which now provides services to people's homes. So a telemedicine visit might be, and I'm talking about in the future, I guess a little bit, but not not really. It happens today too, but not to large scales. But a telemedicine visit might involve a video visit with your provider, and then they might order some labs and a chest X-ray, and an hour later, a little. SUV or little minivan shows up at your house with the equipment and performs the tests. And an hour after that, the provider has the results. So some of these things are changing as our expectations change and we become kind of a a service in internet-driven economy. The medical world is catching up. Frankly, they're behind, but they're starting to catch up with some of these trends. Yeah. And there's also, you know, I was just reading about an app where if you cough into it, it can tell if you have bronchitis. And there's a number of different things which are developing just on the, even Mm -hmm. on the consumer side, which I'm sure could be leveraged, assuming that obviously they've been been tested and validated. And then there's probably also some, you know, just given that it's different, you know, it's a different way to go. I'm sure there's some advantages that you don't get in clinic. Like, for example, I've heard you can tell the patient, go open your refrigerator. Like, I want to see what you got in there, you know? Right. As opposed to asking the patient if they've got healthy food, you can Mm kind of see whether they do or not. Or you could assess whether there's area rugs, you know, assess fall risk. Like, you know, you can see things when you are looking at the patient in their own environment. Yeah, that's an excellent point and kind of speaks to your question earlier about noticing things that might be subtle things indicating domestic abuse or other home issues or social determinants of health. If you think about it, if you have a window into the home, you probably have a better view of the social determinants of health than you would if they were in your environment in the hospital. So that's a very good point. You know, the other thing that you touched on that I'm really excited about, it fascinates me, is all the diagnostic technologies that are coming out, and many of them involve artificial intelligence. So we have several AI artificial intelligence systems running at at LifeBridge, for example, that we've pioneered really with some startup companies. But there's others that we haven't yet adopted that are really exciting as they pertain to telemedicine. As you mentioned, there's a couple of startups, uh, one or two out of Israel, actually, that analyze your voice patterns and can tell you fairly accurately if you have lung disease, asthma, CHF, COPD, and based on data from your last voice pattern with your physician as it recorded, how you're progressing if you're doing better or worse than you normally are, your normal baseline. 
So that analysis, that voice recognition or voice analysis for determining heart and lung disease is pretty remarkable. And that's it's going to become mainstream at some point, I bet, but it's very new stuff. And then there's also some really cool AI technologies that study just your face, the video image of your face, and can deduce some of your vital signs. There's another Israeli startup that we've been looking at that can tell you your pulse ox, your pulse rate, heart rate. They're working on blood pressure. They're working on blood alcohol level and other, some other vital signs and data points in your health just by looking at you. And so those things are fascinating. And as those evolve, I think telemedicine will be even more mainstream and and probably address some of those gaps that you mentioned that aren't quite addressed yet. Well, that's a really interesting kind of construct that you're setting up here, which is that telehealth is not some sort of siloed standalone, we've got you on a video camera, that if you do have other complementary technologies that all sort of work as a set, the telehealth solution becomes much more powerful as it compares to a person to person. But maybe there's actually things that you can do on video, which you can't even do just sitting in a clinical setting, staring at somebody like some of the some yeah. of the facial recognition stuff that you just mentioned. Absolutely. Just given all the stuff that we have just talked about and, and also the sort of rapid innovation and invention that's going on right now because it's need-based, Fast forward to the end of the acute phase of this pandemic. How many telehealth visits do you think are going to remain as a percentage? So if we went from effectively very few to effectively, you know, 60 to 70 percent of of a physician's visits being telehealth, what's the where's it going to shake out? It's a good question. I wish I knew for sure, but I'm sure it's going to be somewhere between where we were and where we're at now. I don't imagine that we'll do as many PCP visits as when we hit our plateau. We're not there yet. I mean, I'm looking at the data every week. We're averaging more and more PCP visits in our system by telehealth. But at some point, we'll reach that plateau. Maybe it's 1,500 visits a day or something like that. We're at about almost about 1,000 a day now. But when we hit that plateau and then we start to go down the curve in terms of daily infection rates and and return to normalcy for COVID, certainly many of those people would still prefer to be in person. If I were a a betting man, I'd probably put it somewhere halfway in between. I mean, we're not going to have two visits a day like we used to, but we might not have 1,500 a day because maybe 25 or 30% of those people will go back to the in-office exams or maybe they'll do it for a percentage of the visits. So maybe on the, the once a year annual physical exam, they'll go into the office, but they'll have far more touch points and check-ins and virtual visits than they did before. You know, some, one of the, you can call it a criticism or you can call it a, a benefit or a feature, but one of the observations about telemedicine is that the number of, once you make something easier to use, and this is kind of a generalized truth, but certainly in medicine, when you improve access, you also improve demand and you improve, uh, increase, sorry, the demand and you increase the use of the utilization. So whereas you might, whereas the typical American might have gone to their doctor once a year when telemedicine is in the forefront and commonplace, they might have two or three telemedicine visits with their doctor per year, but then go in person only once a year. So I expect that the numbers will remain fairly high. They'll probably not be as high as they are now. But the other side of the coin is I bet we'll be doing a lot more 
medicine and visits and touch points than we used to be because it's just so easy to do it this way. So uh, let me unwrap some of the things that you implied and said there. One of the things that you sort of implied is the use of telehealth, telemedicine is consumer driven. So if a consumer wants it, they're going to get it. As opposed to a doctor saying this visit will be on telehealth and I'm going to call you patient. Yeah, I think that it's it's consumer driven. There's definitely demographic influences as to who adopts the technology more readily and who is more resistant and reluctant to adopt the technology. There's socioeconomic differences. But for the most part, it's a consumer-driven model. And healthcare in general is moving in that direction. And it's less top-down and and the doctor says this and more, I'm the paying customer and this is what I expect. And so along those lines, telemedicine is offering ease of use that consumers have grown to expect out of many other services. And so this, you know, it's healthcare as a service. And so it's going to have to change too. So your advice to other providers and executives would be once patients slash consumers get used to the convenience of telehealth, they're going to go get it somewhere. So if let's just say you're a little bit lower on the adoption curve as a provider relative to telehealth, this could be a moment to catch up. Otherwise, patients are going to go elsewhere. Yeah, I definitely think there will be a portion of the patients that go elsewhere. I think for the most part, patients are most connected to their actual physician. You know, some patients might be in love with the health system. Some patients might be in love with the technology or the access or the other peripherals. But I think for the most part, patients are mostly connected to their physicians and will stick with their physicians because they have a relationship. That being said, if the industry moves to this ease and access of telemedicine and physicians don't change, they will probably lose a certain percentage of their patients to that. Just like as some providers have moved to concierge medicine and a different model for delivering care in that way, patients have gone into that method as well in in terms of healthcare. So it's just kind of one of the directions that I think medicine's moving and patients are moving it that way. And you also said that a patient may see their doctor three times a year instead of once, you know, like two times via telehealth and then one time they come in the office for something. Is this ultimately a good thing? I definitely think it is. You have to remember, the more you do something, the more economies of scale and efficiency, the less expensive it becomes. So in general, the telemedicine visit is a lower cost proposition than an in-person visit. You need less resources, less real estate, less support staff, and you actually are more efficient and can do more with your time when you're engaged in a telemedicine visit, we find, than in person. So there will be more touch points, and I think there will be more access to care, but there'll be more efficient access to care, and the value will be higher for those touch points. And then the other important point is that you don't want to overdo it, but certainly there's many, many people with chronic medical conditions that aren't managing them well. And those things like CHF or asthma or diabetes would benefit from much more frequent and short maybe, but frequent touch points with a provider to keep them on track, to make small adjustments, and ultimately to prevent them from having those big emergency style visits once a year or once every five years that that are horrible for the patient in terms of their health and and also extremely expensive in terms of health care. So I think more visits is better if you don't overdo it because you 
can keep people healthy and away from the hospitals, which is good for the patients as well as everyone else. Well, I could offer a counter argument to that, which is that you obviously work for a provider organization. You're incented by volume, fee-for-service incense volume. So for any given provider organization, leveling up the services provided is there's financial incentive to do that. Ultimately, you know, if we're talking about patient outcomes here, and we also know that, you know, what do they say? Sometimes depends who you talk to, 25 to 35% of care delivered these days is some level of fraud, waste, or abuse. And now we have lowered the bar to access, which, and I'm, I'm not advocating for this, but some have used to ensure that, you know, patients have, in quote, skin in the game. You know, like patients are making good decisions about the care that they need. If it's so easy to just dial up a doctor from the comfort of your home, will patients actually drive up the ultimate cost of care, not improve outcomes at the same time because telemedicine is so easy to get? Yeah, it's a good point. That might be true in in the old world of medicine, but it's quickly changing. Maryland, where, where I live in practice, has a unique proposition with CMS and has a waiver and a global budget. So our healthcare is fixed. We Our healthcare dollars are fixed for our hospital system. We don't make more money if we do more medicine. We're given a, a lump sum every year, more or less, and, and we're basically penalized. And this trend is moving across the country. And to various extents, all states experience the fact that they're penalized for health outcomes and for quality metrics. So the idea that we will drive more business through this, I think is maybe could have been true in the 1980s or 1990s. But in this day and age, much more in Maryland, but throughout the United States, there's heavy, heavy penalties to having poor outcomes and having overutilization. And so hospitals and providers do better, actually, if they take better care of their patients. So I think it's a good thing. It aligns us with the patient's outcomes and the patient's quality of care. But it means that there's not going to be unnecessary visits, I don't believe. As you mentioned, with chronic care patients, I mean, a constant refrain is not that they're seen too much, but that a patient who doesn't have their meds titrated or doesn't have enough information to adequately self-manage, they're the patients that wind up in trouble. Yeah. You know, the other point is there's a lot of programs in terms of health organizations that are given basically lump sums per patient by Medicare to care for them. So they, you have a diabetes patient, we'll give you $2,200 a year to care for them. We don't care what you do with it. But that's what you get and you do the best you can to keep the cost down and to keep their health up. Because if you don't, financially speaking anyways, it's going to cost you. It's not going to cost the CMS. So there's, there's accountable care organizations and other programs that make care delivery very much a lump sum and not contingent on fee for service. We also do a lot of telehealth in regards to surgical patients where their surgeries already the way it's it's built and structured is a lump sum for the total knee replacement. So if we can do multiple visits by telehealth before and after the surgery to check in on the patient, we actually reduce our costs. You know, the, the doctor doesn't make any more for doing five post-op visits by telemedicine, but they do reduce the pain and suffering of the patient and also the costs on the health system and on their office by preventing that that wound from becoming infected because they're observing it so many times and so frequently and maybe intervening with antibiotics that they see it starts to get a little red. OB services are are lump sum. There's a lot of healthcare that's that's not fee for service. 
in the sense that you get paid once for the entire encounter and multiple follow-ups. In that case, telemedicine also is, is beneficial. It's less expensive to do a telehealth visit with a patient than it might be to do a, an in-person encounter. So if you're helping a chronic disease patient manage their condition, if you're helping, as you mentioned, a surgical patient ensure that their wound doesn't get infected, it would seem like it's a benefit to the consumer and also the provider organization. It's a win-win all around to conduct these kinds of follow-up services or management services over telehealth. Yeah, I think chronic care management is a great example of that. Remote patient monitoring, which we do, which is kind of a little separate, but it's part of telemedicine is a great example of that. That being said, of course, there there will be abuses and exceptions, and there's already some debate over certain types of practices of telemedicine. The idea of prescribing, of having a, a video visit and prescribing medication inappropriately has been widely debated. And so it, there's a checks and a balances, and there's certain things that should or shouldn't be done via telemedicine you know, ethically, and also people will take advantage, I'm sure. But for the most part, it's about the patient and it's about really keeping them well and away from dangerous waters with their chronic conditions. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of All of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.